Okay, I'm glad you're here. We're doing uh, the Parshas of, of Pinchas, and, um, and there's a lot to explore. Actually, it's, it's especially significant that we're reading this part of the Torah at this time during the year, because this is known as the, the three weeks. This is the period between the time when the walls of uh, Jerusalem were broken and when the Beis HaMikdash, the Holy Temple, um, was actually destroyed. So, so Pinchas is, is especially interesting to do now, because Pinchas is really about action and, uh, and real nitty-gritty rectification without anger. Without anger. You see, Pinchas took an action. There was the prince of the tribe of Shimon. Uh, a man named Zimri, and a princess from the uh, kingdom of Midian, um, or was it Moab? It was Midian. Midian. Midian, yeah? Yeah. So, Midian, uh, named Cosby, and they were sort of publicly behind closed doors, and all that implies. And uh, Pinchas goes in and sort of like, lays down the law with a spear. So, anyway, it's a, it's, a, it's a serious action that's taken. And there are a lot of Nisim, a lot of miracles uh, surrounding it. And, um, but what's so interesting about the, the whole episode, well, there are actually fascinating things and all sorts of Kabbalistic things, and hopefully we'll have time to get into it. All sorts of things about transmigrations of souls and fixings of past lives and there's, there's tons and tons of amazing stuff that goes back to Adam Harishon. I mean, really, it's, it's really intense. But I just want to focus on something on a very, very practical level before we get a little more kind of lofty and conceptual, which is the application of anger or action without anger. You see, the greatness of Pinchas is, is that he's, he's able to do something purely for the sake of God, not because he was angered also. Normally speaking, you see, you know, we have a, a famous thing, I think it was said by H.L. Mencken, um, I saw it in his name, he was sort of like a, a pundit in the uh, middle of the last century. Um, anyway, a journalist, and he said, you know, sometimes when people say, it's not the money, it's the principle, it's the money. That's what he said. So, a lot of people will tell you, it's not the money, it's the principle. It's, it's the money. Oftentimes. Oftentimes. I, I personally have my own theory, which is that in human events, human relationships, if you're trying to figure out, why did that person do that, right? This is one of our great pastimes. We spend a huge amount of our life trying to figure out why that person did that action, right? I personally believe that if you can narrow it down to two things, you say, he was either doing it because of this, or he was doing it because of that. If you can already narrow it down to two things, it's already both of the things. In other words, it's just a question of what, what, what's the degree. Maybe it's 80% this reason and 20% that reason. But if you can, in human relationships, narrow something down to two motives already, it's already both of them. Because human beings are very complicated. Now, that, that's just my own personal theory. But anyway, the point is like this. If someone 
Pinchas sees that the Torah is publicly being desecrated and a terrible message is being sent to the Jewish people for, for all time that could have sort of changed the way that we understand what our, what our priorities are and what our obligations are in terms of the service of God. Pinchas sees that this, this, this action is being taken and he could say, you are desecrating Hashem's name and I'm going to take action. But most people in that, in that position, also deep in their heart, are also, how dare you do that to me? I believe that you shouldn't do that. And your crime is not just a crime against God, your crime is also a crime against me and my ego. Since I stand for X and you are violating X, therefore you are doing it not just to X, but to me also. Now, again, this is a very nuanced discussion because the truth is, is that we're all one soul. And if one person does something wrong, the truth is, is that it really does affect all of us. The, the classic example that's given is imagine both of us are in a rowboat. OK, like um, imagine uh, a sink a ship sinks, God forbid, and, and a bunch of us get into a, a rowboat. So now, thank God we're saved, right? We just got to get to the shore, right? Now, can you imagine all of us are in this rowboat and you take out a, uh, a drill and you start drilling a hole underneath where you're sitting in the rowboat, right? What's that going to do? It's going to sink the ship, Right? And someone says to you in the boat, what are you doing? And you say, hey, this is my seat. I can do whatever I want. <laughs> Does that make sense? We're all in it together, right? You understand? I'll give you another example of this. Another classic example. I think this one is even more classic than the first example. Is that imagine you're cutting uh, uh, some meat. Say, you're sitting down to, for a meal, you got a fork and you got a knife, and you, uh, you're cutting the meat, and you make a mistake. You get a little careless, and with the knife, unfortunately, you cut your hand, right? Now, can you imagine that then you take the fork and you stab the knife that cuts you with the knife to get that hand back? How dare you cut me with a knife? I'll stab you with a fork. It's crazy, right? Because it's, it's you. <laughs> so, so we're all one soul. We're all one soul. So we're all connected. So if you do something, it affects me. I'll, see you, I'll tell you where you see that in halacha, in Jewish law. Um, we're very sensitive about not making blessings unnecessarily. You know, when someone first starts out and they start trying to do more mitzvahs and things like this, um, what, what they, uh, they think, oh my goodness, they find out that there's a concept of saying a blessing before you eat and after you eat. It's a very beautiful thing. It's a recognition that everything that you have comes from God and you're acknowledging the source of it. It's a very beautiful, very holy thing to do. In fact, you're supposed to make, the, the, the Talmud says, a hundred blessings a day. A person's supposed to make a hundred blessings a day. Okay. And that includes, um, you know, the, the davening, that, that includs the, the prayers in the Shemona Esrei and everything like that. And they figure out, if you 
bench over your meal, you say the, the after blessings and you, and, you, and you pray three times a day and you say a few more blessings, you go to the bathroom a couple of times, you say the blessings after that, you get to a hundred, no problem. Okay, but anyway, so when someone first starts out, they figure, the more blessings I say, the better. And if I'm in doubt whether to say a blessing or not, for sure I should say a blessing because blessings are great and the more I say, the better. Not the case. Not the case. Why? Because you're saying Hashem's name. And that's a very reverential thing to do. And we don't want to just throw around the utterance of Hashem's name. So believe it or not, we have a rule of thumb, which is that if you're in doubt whether to make a blessing or not, you don't make it. Because we, every, you know, it's not a simple thing to make a blessing. Serious business. Okay, so with that in mind, listen to the following case. This is to show you how all of our souls are connected like one. Okay? We have um, the, the mitzvah to make Kiddush on Shabbos. Okay? So when you make, when you make Kiddush on Shabbos, <clears throat> you're testifying. That's why you have to stand, by the way. Because you're testifying that God created the world. Okay? So everyone stands. So I'm talking about Friday night right now. Everyone stands. And then you say the blessing. You read a little paragraph about how Hashem made the world. And then you say, Okay, so that's your blessing and everyone's good. And that's what it is. Now imagine someone walks into the room and he, didn't, he, he enters into your house or whatever it is. He didn't hear Kiddush. And he doesn't know how to make Kiddush. So the question is, can you make Kiddush for him? Well, you could tell me, well, wait a second, you already fulfilled your obligation. You already said Kiddush. You already said that blessing. You can't just say that blessing again. You already did that. That could be a, what we call a bracha levatala, an unnecessary blessing. Or bracha sheinat tzaricha. It's totally unnecessary. You can't do it. But what's the halacha? Jewish law says, not only can you do it, but after you do it, if someone new walks into the room, you can do it. And if someone new walks into the room after that, you can do it. You can do it a million times. You can do it 14 million times. You can do it 15 million times. You know why? Because we're all one soul. And if you haven't heard Kiddush yet, since we're all one soul, on some level, I haven't heard Kiddush yet. Do you understand? So here you see that, on the one hand, we're incredibly um, careful in terms of making a blessing that it shouldn't be an inappropriate use of Hashem's name. On the other hand, when it comes to the fulfillment of a mitzvah, since we're all one soul, if you haven't done it yet, I haven't done it yet. So you can do it millions of times. Okay, so, so, so let's get back to Pinchas. So on some level, you could say to me, well, they're doing it they're doing this public act against God. So that means on some level, they're messing me up. They're messing me up. Ah, but now we're getting into very, very muddy waters. Because now you get all, you, you're, you're entering into ego land. Who are you to mess me up? How dare you mess me up? Now, who's it about now? Is it about Hashem anymore? Or is it about me? Do you understand? It's about me. You're messing me up by what you're doing. Now, just like remember, when people say it's not the money, it's the principle, it's usually the money, right? 
So when people say, no, but it's not about messing me up, you're, you're, you're publicly desecrating Hashem. See, now you bring Hashem into it. Now that's supposed to fix everything, right? But meanwhile, the core inside, 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 inside aspect of myself is coming from a place of hurt and anger. So now let's re-approach Pinchas in all of his greatness. Pinchas acts with zero anger. Zero anger. For him, it really was all about Hashem. It really was all about Hashem. And not, not, about, not about himself. Not from a place of anger. Okay. So... And that's why you see this, that's why you see this incredible dichotomy, almost paradox. Paradox is when you have two things that can't fit together and nonetheless they're fitting together. That's a paradox. What is the paradox of Pinchas? He kills two people and Hashem says, I bless you with the covenant of peace. You brought peace into the world. A plague is coming that decimates 24,000 people because of this, this wrong that sort of entered in. This, it, it, that Cosby and Zimri un, un, unleashed this heavenly wrath, this plague, this magefa that went whoosh, just came and just started like frying up people, you know? And this action ended death. This killing action ended death. And brought peace into the world. Okay, so, so how is that possible? That sounds like a paradox. How is that possible? And the reason is because he did it without any, a, any anger whatsoever. He did it only for Hashem. Now, the reason why you don't hear about lots of things like this since that time is because people are doing it for themselves. If there's an iota of self-interest involved, then it doesn't work like this. Again, that's why we're discussing this still several thousand years later, because of the uniqueness of what he was able to accomplish. You know, when people go, you know, it's such a, it's so unfortunate. It's such a perversion of truth, and it's such a perversion of, of religion, and it's such a perversion of godliness. When, when you have people who are recruited to be suicide bombers, and, and they recruit them from, from, from a young age, from childhood, and they promise them all of these rewards in heaven, 72 virgins in heaven that they'll have, and all sorts of other delights that they'll have from killing women and children in pizza parlors. You know? So... So they inculcate, besides the utter monstrosity of, of that theology, besides the monstrosity of it, just to look at it from the perspective that we've been developing this morning, the fact that these people are told that you're going to receive a reward, that there's self-interest, that there's something in it for you in order to do this action, means that the act of violence that they're committing is based on self-interest even if they also say, no, I'm doing it because it's a great principle in my religion. 
You see, it's also coming from a place 100% of self-interest. Because of this tremendous reward you're going to receive. So how can a person in their own mind separate those two things? They can't. And if they tell you that they can, believe me, they can't. Believe me, they can't. And you know what one of the proofs is? Because when Pinchas did this thing, there was no more death. There were no more plagues after that. After these people do this act of murder and violence, there's more murder and more murder. That's the result of the actions. Not an ending of it, as what happened when Pinchas did in fact, you see something quite remarkable, which um, I'll just point out to you. There are only a very few precious examples of where, you know, you should know that when you've got, we call them psukim, or a pasuk is the singular. It's translated as a verse in English. When you have different verses in the Torah, those verses, the beginning of the verse and the end of the verse, or to use an even more common uh, 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 term, a sentence. When you have a sentence in the Torah, right? We'll, we'll call it a pasuk. That was ordained by, by the rabbis, the chachamim from the very beginning, probably from, from Mount Sinai, probably from Moshe and Hashem himself, dictated where a verse begins and where a verse ends, okay? The chapters that you have in the Torah... Those were made by, like, um, book printers. So that that's doesn't come from a, a Jewish source, when they divide up the Torah into chapters. But the verses themselves have great sanctity, okay? You don't break up a verse, okay? But there are certain times, very limited numbers of times, when you do break up a verse, okay? So just to, so you understand the fullness of the point that we're making here, one of the times that a verse is broken up in the middle of the verse itself. Remember, we always keep verses together. Here you see a verse is broken in the middle, and then the second part of the same verse is made into a new chapter. Do you hear? And this was ordained by the, by the Jewish sages. So it's, it's, it's with this episode of Pinchas, right after, right after the word... Um, Plague, okay? And this is, um, if you want to know, chapter 26, verse 1, okay? Interesting that it's chapter 26. Anyway, so, so, you know, 26 is the numerical equivalent of Hashem's holiest name, the Yudke Vavke. And it also stands for the attribute of Rachamim, of mercy. So it's interesting that you see great mercy happening in chapter 26, verse 1, the oneness of God, right? Where after the word it says, That means that it was after the plague. A magefa is a plague. So what happens? After the word plague, that's the middle of this verse, all of a sudden the verse skips to a brand new chapter. We're still in the same verse, but we, sk- we skip and establish a brand new chapter to make a separation after the word plague. Okay? 
And what does it say? What's the rest of it? Hashem spoke to Moshe and to Elazar, son of Aaron a Kohen, saying, Take a census of the entire assembly of the children of Israel from 20 years age up, according to their father's households, everyone who goes out to the legion in Israel. Okay, so that actually included the next uh, verse in there, just to give you some context. But, but the, the point is this, that there are different rabbis' comments on why, why that verse ends in the middle after the word plague. One of them is because now we're going to be counting the people. And so we just want to make a complete separation. Okay? We don't want to put this overlay of the word plague on the counting of the people, God forbid. There is a complete ending and a separation. But another opinion that was given is that after that plague, all the plagues stopped. And you don't see another example for the rest of the five books about a plague. All the plagues stop. Meaning, Pinchas did what he did from a standpoint of purity and the violence ended after that. In terms of, in terms of the repercussions of this action. Okay. So, so, so zealotry is, is really tricky business in Torah. You know, if you want to like run out and stop something, it's, it's tricky business. It's tricky business because you can do more harm than good a lot of the time. And a lot of that results from the fact that you aren't happy with the action that the other person is doing and it's messing up you as opposed to what the Torah is looking for. Okay. So now I want to go deeper into this. I want to share a, a thought that I had over Shabbos that I got very excited about. So, so let me just um, give you a little bit more background. I told you that there was quite, quite uh, a number of amazing things in terms of Gilgul uh, Neshamos, uh, reincarnation and transmigration of souls and all sorts of things happening with, the, with, this, uh, with this case with Pinchas. And so one of the things that happened is that, is that Pinchas ran into this tent, right? And the guards of the tribe of Shimon are at the tent blocking his way. And it was a very frightening thing that he was about to do because he was about to knock off the head of an entire tribe of Israel. Okay, so this is very serious business, okay? Now, by the way, you should know that he asked Moshe Rabbeinu, what, what is the halacha? What does Jewish law say needs to be done under this set of circumstances? So that in itself was a fixing for... Nadav and Avihu. Now, if you aren't familiar with those two names, it's important for the thought that we're getting to. Nadav and Avihu were the two um, eldest sons of Aaron Akohen. And during the dedication of the Mishkan, they basically, you know, it's a whole long discussion in itself, it's a whole chapter, but basically they were trying to bring Mashiach. I mean, that's sort of like the long and the short of it. They were trying to bring Mashiach, but they kind of tried to do it their own way, basically. And as a result, they died. But they were the, they were the chief sons of, of, of Aaron Akohen, of Aaron the high priest. And um, the sources say that they were so holy, Nadav and Avihu, 
that they were even holier than Moshe and Aaron on some level. It's hard to wrap our minds around that thought, but this is, this is our tradition. Okay. So why did Nadav and Avihu die? Well, there are about a dozen reasons listed what mistake they made, actually. Okay, everything from the fact that they were drunk to the fact that they weren't married to the fact that they didn't wash their hands and feet before they went in to the fact that they brought strange fire to the fact that they ran into the Holy of Holies when they shouldn't have. There's all sorts of explanations given. One of the very fascinating explanations that's given is that they poskined halacha in front of Moshe and Aaron. Meaning that here you had probably the two greatest people ever, Moshe and Aaron, who are in direct contact with God, who are able to, hopefully we'll get to this point later on in the talk, who, like Moshe, if you ask him a question, he's able to say, you know what, I don't know the answer, let me ask God. He asks God, get the answer, and then tells you right away. I mean, this is, this is phenomenal. This is phenomenal. So, in front of someone like that, you decide what's the answer, instead of asking him. That's, that doesn't go. That's not Torah. Torah, you have to, it goes from the top down, basically. You know, the, the, the holiest people tell, tell the rest of us. Because they, they've got a direct line, basically. You know? doesn't mean that you don't have a direct relationship with God. You do. But when it comes to deciding on what the actual practice is, you have to consult a rabbi. Okay? And these traditions are received. And they go back to Mount Sinai, to God himself. Okay. So with that in mind... You see, there's something very problematic about the fact that Nadav and Avihu, as great as they were, were deciding halacha in front of Moshe and Aaron. There's a real problem there. So that is listed as one of the reasons why they, they, they left the world seemingly prematurely. Okay. Now, with that in mind, understand the following. Because we're building to something. Because Pinchas, you're going to see on one level, on one quite amazing level, was a fixing for the souls of Nadav and Avihu. Okay? So, one of the crucial things that Pinchas did before his act of uh, being a zealot was he inquired, what is the law? And he inquired of Moshe, what is the law? Okay? Something that Nadav and Avihu did not do. Does everyone hear? So that's sort of a fixing for Nadav and Avihu, but this is, we're just at the beginning now, okay? Okay, but that's a key step. So now, Pinchas goes in, and this is like a heavily guarded tent where the illicit activities are taking place, okay? Pinchas goes in, and it says that it was so scary, this thing with the armed guards and everything like that, and the fact that he's taking his life into his hands doing this action... He goes in, it says that he was literally scared to death. That his soul flew out of his body. And the souls of Nadav and Avihu flew into his body. This is quite amazing. This is quite amazing. Now, it, it helps to answer on a very sort of esoteric, very Kabbalistic level, a question, but we'll leave that off to the side right now because I want to show you, tell you, share with you the point from yesterday that I was sort of excited about.
We talked about it a, a number of months ago. Um, I wish I could show you a chart right now. If you're interested, if you go to TorahOniTunes.com and you look up the talk, it's, I, I called it Singing the World into Existence. You'll see I have a chart where you can see this with your own eyes. It's, it's good to see it with your own eyes. But let me just describe it to you. The letter Pei, um, it's one of the letters in the, in the Hebrew alphabet. The letter Pei is drawn, is written in such a way where inside the letter Pei is the letter Bez. In other words, the, the outline of the letter Bez appears inside the letter Pei. The Ramban uh, brings down in his introduction to Chumash that the whole Torah is black fire written on white fire. So if you want to say it another way, the pay is the black fire, and the bays, the letter bays, inside the pay is the white fire. Okay? Now, this is not just a cool thing, like, well, if you write a pay a certain way, you can sort of see the letter bays. This is, it's, it's much more than that. This is halacha, this is Jewish law, that the letter pay, when you're writing a Torah scroll, must be written this way. And I saw it with my own eyes in the Mishnah Brewer. They even describe the, it. Even in the printed form, you can see the, in the white, you can see the bay in the pay. Yeah, yeah, but for sure you can see it in a Torah scroll. Next time you have an aliyah, yeah. when, you, when you are standing over the Torah scroll, if you stare into the letter pay, you have to stare at it a little bit, you'll see the letter bays will pop out. You have to kind of look at it, but, but you'll see it. But anyway, the point is, is that it's actually Jewish law that this base must appear within the pet. Okay? Now, this Shabbos I was thinking, I was thinking, you know, pay, pay is the first letter of Pinchas, so pay stands for Pinchas. Then I'm thinking, okay, so there's this base, the letter base is inside of Pinchas. What does that mean? What is the connection between the letter Bez and Pinchas? And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm racking my brains, and then all of a sudden I got so excited. The letter Bez is the number two. That's the numerical equivalent of the letter Bez, right? Because it goes Aleph, Bez. One, two. And so I realized, wow, the Bez, two, that stands for Nadav and Avihu, who went inside of Pinchas. Right? That's the base inside the pay. That's hinting at Nadav and, Vi, and, and, and Avihu going inside of Pinchas. My niece, Rocky, Solomon, said, Bez is also the Brisi Shalom. That's the covenant of peace. That's also inside of Pinchas. I also want to say, I hope to get to it from Reb Shlomo. Reb Shlomo says that what Pinchas did, and now we're getting into this idea of how this action could have also brought peace, okay? That what Pinchas did, and now we're getting like, like way into the deep end right now. What Pinchas did was he connected heaven and earth. You see, our tradition is Pinchas Zu Eliyahu. 
This means Pinchas becomes Eliyahu Hanavi. Eliyahu Hanavi lives forever. He's the person who's so refined that death can't enter into him. Eliyahu ascends to heaven and comes back down. He goes up and down. It says he's at every bris. He goes up and down. His physicality contains no mortality. Bless you. So this connection between heaven and earth, I also want to say, is the base. Heaven and earth is the base. And so that base, which is also the Brisi Shalom, the covenant of peace, is also inside Pinchas. The above and the below connected together, heaven and earth connected together. So now, now since we're now entering into this aspect of the talk, let me develop it further. I want to add one new idea before I get into the ideas of Rabbi Shlomo. You know, why is there so much hatred? Like I said, we're reading Pinchas in the three weeks right now. Why is there so much hatred? Because we say that one of the reasons why the, the Beis Migdash was destroyed was because of, we call it, Sinas Chinam, which means causeless hatred. That means I'm hating you and you're hating me for no real reason. By the way, I want to give you a modern example of this if you will, because a lot of times people go, well, it's true, people are hating each other for no reason, but then they can't really apply it to their own minds. It's hard for us to apply it to our own minds. I want to give just one example that I think is a very practical example. Imagine I'm friends with someone, right? And then someone who's, say, an, a, a, an older friend of mine, a more long-standing friend of mine, comes up to me and says, you know that person who I see you're friends with now? And I say, yes. And they say, that person really messed me up. That person did bad things to me. Now, this is my old friend talking to me right now. So I say, okay. And they say, well, I don't want you to be friends with that person. Because that person messed me up. And if you're friends with that person, then you can't be friends with me. Because you're being friends with that person is an act of disloyalty to me. Well, that's kind of a difficult situation, isn't it? Because this new friend of mine didn't do anything bad to me. And now I have to hate that person and not be friends with that person because of what the new person is saying, what my old friend is saying to me. Do you understand? So if I cut myself off from my new friend, that's sort of causeless hatred, isn't it? Because I'm sowing hatred between me and him, and there's no reason to do that. That person didn't do anything to me. So what's a person to do when they're in a situation like that? Well, you can try to make peace. You can say, well, you know what? What happened? And by the way, you have to be careful when you try to make peace that you don't put your old friend who's your good friend on the defensive. 
Because you know what? That new friend of yours may have actually have messed up your old friend. Your old friend might be right, by the way. If you come to your old friend and you say to them, well, why do you feel this way? Why are you harboring hatred in your heart? Why? Because that person really did something terrible to me. And now I'm mad at you. Why are you defending that person over me, your old standing friend? Now I'm mad at both of you. So you have to be very careful. Peacemaking is a, a very, very difficult art form. You know, it says the master peacemaker among the Jewish people was Aaron Akoin. Do you know how he would make peace between two people? This is brilliant. It's brilliant. He would, he would go up to one person. These are two people who are fighting. He would go up to one person. He would say, you know that guy who you're fighting with? And he'd go, yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Yeah. He wants to make up with you, but he doesn't know how. Then he'd go up to the other person. He'd go, you know that guy who you're fighting with? Yeah, I know. He wants to make up with you, but he doesn't know how. Then when the two of them would see each other, they would realize that both of them want to make peace, but each person is doing the other person a favor because he sees he does want to make friends with me, but he doesn't know how. So then they would help each other out and they would become friends again. Amazing, right? Amazing. So when you make... When you try to make peace, the first thing that you have to make sure you do is not put your old friend on the defensive and assume because that they have anger in their heart that they must be on a very low spiritual level and they must be wrong because who are you not to be more forgiven, right? You have to acknowledge and validate the fact that they feel a certain way. You should know, I I mentioned my father all the time, actually he was buried today four years ago. His neshama should have an aliyah. Leben Svi Halemi. So he was a psychologist. He had a practice for 50 years and uh, was a very great man. And uh, my mother should also be blessed. So, uh, my father always made a very strong point to me. He would say, you don't deal with the truth, you deal with people's perception of the truth. In other words, if someone feels as though they've been wronged, and let's say it's in their head, right? It's just in their head. In their mind, they've been wronged. So you have to approach them and take their feelings very seriously. Right? And by the way, what do you know? They might be right. You might think, okay, that person's a crackpot. They have a taina, they have a complaint against this person. They're a crackpot, they're probably wrong. They might be right. You know, they say even a broken clock is right twice a day. Did you ever hear that expression? (laughs) And they also say that even paranoid people actually have enemies. (laughs) So, you know, just because someone is a little bit off kilter doesn't mean that they're wrong all the time. Okay? But even if they are wrong, even if they are wrong, if they feel very strongly a certain way, you have to take their feelings into account and you have to take them seriously. You have to deal with people's perception of the truth. So if your old friend is angry, you have to take it very seriously. Okay, what, what, what happened? You know, t- tell me what happened. Can I, what can I do? What can I do to try to smooth things over? Is there anything that I can do? 
right? Okay, so it's tricky. It's a tricky situation. Anyway, I want to get back to something. Because we said that this is the middle of the three weeks. In the beginning of the three weeks, the, there's a wall, and you're going to see, I'm going to go to a, I'm going to make a connection here, which is a little bit way out in a moment, okay? There's a wall around Yerushalayim, and that wall on the 17th of Tammuz is broken, okay? And then that leads to the destruction of the Beis Amigdash. We're learning about Pinchas now during the three weeks, Okay? Listen to this. Kabbalistically speaking, we say, I saw this in uh, Rabbi Wolfson's Sefer, Shlita. He brings this down. So, Rabbi Wolfson points out that Kabbalistically, our tradition is, you see, because Adam HaRishon, because Adam was the very first person so he's all of our fathers, right? He's all of our progenitor, right? Because it all starts with him. So in that way, in that way, all of the souls of everyone can be traced back to him since he's our father, right? You with me? Which means that every single buddy's soul comes from a different part of Adam. You with me? Now listen to this. This is really way out. You ready? When Adam was born, he was born complete. Meaning to say, he didn't have an orla. Okay? What's an orla? So, everyone knows when a, uh, a man, a boy, is born, there's an extra flap of skin on his male member. And the act of circumcision is to cut away that orla, that covering, that extra flap of skin, and that's sort of the completion of the, of the process. So it's very important, it's very important if, uh, for every Jew to have a circumcision. If you, if you haven't had one, you have to have one, because it's very, it's very, very significant. And by the way, this mirrors the entire destiny of the world. This action. How so? Because what happens is, God basically makes us partners with Him in terms of finishing creation, in terms of perfecting creation. And each person is a miniature world. So what happens is, is that just like the world was made in a state that it needed to be completed, and that's what we do with the Torah and the mitzvahs, we're bringing the world toward perfection, right? So too, that's mirrored in terms of the human body, which is a miniature of the world. It's created with the smallest amount imperfect, so to speak. And then God asks us to finish the job. So it parallels the entire history of the world, if you will. That's why you've got this incredible correlation between the fact that Eliyahu, who we said is Pinchas, right? Eliyahu comes to a bris. And Eliyahu announces the completion of the world. Do, do you see the parallel? There's an exact parallel between the completion of a human being and the completion of the world itself. That's why Eliyahu is present at both points. 
Now listen to this. Remember, before Eliyahu is Eliyahu, he's Pinchas, who goes and gets Zimri and Cosby. Okay? By the way, well, let's hold on to that thought for a moment. So now listen to this. We haven't gotten to the point yet. When Adam Harishon was born, he was born without this flap of skin. When he was exiled from the Garden of Eden, it grew on him. It grew on him. Okay? Now, that, that orla, that extra flap, represents an increased materialism that came into the world after the Garden of Eden. In other words, there was a very sublime, perfect vision of God that, 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 that everyone is able to see. Well, just Adam and Eve, I guess, at that point. This is before the eating from the tree of knowledge. Afterwards, God becomes more hidden in the world. And that flap of skin that enters onto the body, remember, a person represents the world, mirrored the fact that there was an extra degree of concealment that entered into the world. That's why the Sfasema says that when you do the act of circumcision, what you're doing is you're also removing from the world at large a degree of concealment of godliness. If you will, you're poking a hole through this barrier, this, this dome that exists in the world, and more light is coming in, if you will. Okay? I'm sorry that it's taking me a while to get to the actual point. Please forgive me, but you'll see it's quite dramatic. So, so when Adam leaves the Garden of Eden, there's more concealment in the world, right? Because we've left the Garden of Eden, for goodness sakes, right? Exile begins. This is mirrored in his own physicality by the fact that he now has an orla. Do you know where Zimri's... Remember, remember, Pinchas kills Zimri and Cosby. Okay? Zimri is the head of the tribe of Shimon. Do you know Kabbalistically where Zimri's neshama comes from on the body of Adam Harishon? From the orla. Wow. That's pretty way out. Right? And what does, when, when Zimri actually, when, when, when Pinchas actually goes and executes the judgment on Cosby and Zimri, let's get a little graphic for a moment, I apologize, but in that place where they're co-joined during the act itself, that place where they're joined together is where the spear went through. And then he lifted them up. Okay? So that's... It, it was a circumcision of sorts, if you will, what took place. But now I want to say my thought. My thought is that we're learning Pinchas, which is a clarification of our own anger and, and the misapplication of our anger, which can cause hatred. 
during the three weeks. What is the wall around Jerusalem? It's like an orla. Do you hear? The wall around Jerusalem is like that flap of skin which surrounds the aver. And so in a positive way, what's happening right now is the wall is being broken down. You see, on the plus side, on the positive side, we are now taking this negative act that happened, which is knocking down the walls of Jerusalem, and we are, by exercising and controlling our anger, by being Pinchas instead of the Romans, or the Babylonians, by being Pinchas, we're knocking down the walls, the obstacles for good right now, getting ready to reveal the birth of Mashiach on Tisha B'Av. Do you hear the parallel? Do you hear the rectification? Do you hear? Does everyone follow? How the wall around Jerusalem is like the Aver, which is being cut off by Pinchas during these three weeks. Does everyone hear this point? But how do we do that? How do we do that in our own lives? How do we become holy moils, so to speak? By controlling our anger. You know, I heard someone say one time, it always stayed with me, when you want to give someone a piece of your mind, think about it five times first and then don't do it. <laughs> you know, it's a good rule of thumb. It's a good rule of thumb. I'll tell you something. You know, this is a bit of a harsh Torah, but this is the, if you want to know why we break a, a glass under the chuppah, there are a lot of beautiful drushas, beautiful explanations that are given that are very, very spiritual. But do you want to know the, the classic answer? The classic answer is because it's a sign between the bride and the groom, the chassan and the kala, that just like you can't put a broken glass together again, there are certain things that break that can't be put back together again. And you have to be careful what you say to each other. Because sometimes words leave your mouth, and that's it. They leave your mouth. That's what it is. Can't get them back into your mouth because they left your mouth. And something that's broken can't be put back together again. Now, we have to live our lives like Rebbe Nachman teaches that if you believe that something can be broken, you also have to believe that it can be fixed. Right? But nonetheless, there's a serious warning sign that's put at the very beginning of a marriage between husband and wife about how careful they have to be when they address each other. You know, and that applies to all of us too, because we're all one soul, as we said. So on some level, we're all soulmates with each other. Hey, we're not married to each other, but there's a deep connection. We have to be careful what we say. Um, well, there's, there's, there's a lot more, but... Um, I don't, I don't know that we're going to get to it. You want to try a question? With the big nun. Yes. I'm going to try. I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Let's see if I can shift gears. Okay. So, all right, let's try it. Um, there's, there are a lot of very amazing things scripturally in terms of the way the Torah is written in this week's Parsha. 
we covered one of them, the fact that a verse is interrupted in the middle. Right? That, that was one point that we covered already. In the very beginning of the Parsha, there are two others, and there's a third which I'll try to spend a little more time on. There's a tiny Yud in the name of Pinchas at the very beginning of the Parsha. A small Yud, which is very cool. Uh, the explanation that I heard was that Pinchas made himself very small. Well, we talk, when we talk about some, a person's godly essence, there's a colloquial phrase that we use, the Pintaliyid, the little Yud, meaning the, the spark of God that we all have inside of us, right? So, in other words, sometimes when someone takes such a bold act like Pinchas did, sometimes that can, or often that either comes from a place of anger, as we described, or a place of ego, a place of arrogance. How dare you! Right? So here you see that the Yud in Pinchas is very small, which is testimony that he was coming from an extremely humble place. So that's, that in itself is very cool. Another very cool thing is that the word Shalom, the Vav in the word Shalom, has a slash through it. Very intense, that. The, 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 and there are different scriptural traditions, whether that Vav is written as a Yud, because the bottom just got cut off. Or if there's just a line through the vav, it's a diagonal line through the vav. Okay? Very many deep explanations about that. Then we've got the verse being interrupted. This is, all takes place within the few opening few lines of Pinchas. Lots going on. But then later on in the chapter, we've got something else that's super cool, which is the large nun. Okay? Now, Nun, we know, is the number 50. And in Torah, that's a very, very significant number. Because when we talk about the structure of the heavens, it goes up to the 50th level. 50 represents the top of heaven. And so, if you have a Nun, that corresponds with the top of heaven. Now, what if you actually have a a, a Nun that's written in the Torah in a large way? Well, man, that's, that's the top of the top of the top of the top, right? That's, that's a big deal, okay? So, I'm glad that you brought this up, because this will tie together all the different themes that we've been discussing right now. Um, there's the Nun, if you want to see it. Uh, I'll tell you where it is if you want to look it up on your own. Um, it's uh, chapter 27, verse 5, in... Uh, Safer Bamidbar, the book of Numbers. It's a short Pusik, but very significant. It says, By a crave Moshe S. Mishpatan Lifne Hashem. Okay? And in English, that means, uh, and Moshe brought their claim before Hashem. Okay, so what's the context? <clears throat> All right. All right. I'm going to try to say this quickly, but we're going to try to jam a lot in there. Okay? Who is their claim? Who had a claim? The daughters of Slavchad had a claim. And this is one of the instances where Moshe didn't know what the law was. And he was asked, what's the law? And he asked God directly, God, what's the law? What do I do? And God says, do this. And it comes right down. So that in itself is an amazing thing. And this is one of the primary examples of it. Okay. What, was, what, was the, what were the daughters of this man named Slavchad asking for? So Slavchad only had daughters. 
And they were all super holy. All the daughters are super holy. One of the ways we know this is because the, their names are listed in two different places in the Chumash, once in one order, once in another order. And the tradition is that the reason why they're listed in two different orders is because they were all equally holy. Because sometimes when you list the first name first, that means you go from the top to the bottom in terms of spiritual levels, right? So they were all super holy, the daughters, okay? So the law, as it had been revealed up until now, remember, in terms of Jewish history, the Jewish people are about to enter into the land of Israel, okay? Up until now, here's what we thought that the halacha was, was the law. A son inherits from the father, right? But wait a second, what if there's no son? What if it's only women? Does the woman inherit? Or does the woman not inherit? Okay? Now, if you want to know just how far in advance of the rest of the world Torah, well, always will be because it's the truth, but, but Torah has been historically, look how you see evidence of property rights for women, which is way, way ahead of other civilizations. Thousands of years, even, in terms of certain civilizations. Okay? So the answer comes down, and hopefully I can give you a little bit more background in a second, but let me just make the point very clearly right now. The halacha comes down that in this instance where a man only has daughters, that the property does go to the daughters, to the women. Okay? And so they get a place in the land. Okay? They, they're property owners as well. All right. Now, somehow, in Moshe's asking this question, we've got this large nun. What's the large nun doing? Right? We just said that this is super significant, right? All right, it sounds like some basic Jewish law. Like, I left, you know, I cooked some macaroni in this pot, and it's been, you know, it's been eight hours, and I reheated uh, some meat chili. What's the halacha? Can I eat the meat chili? What do I have to do with the pot? Do I have to kosher the pot? It's like, okay, she, she can inherit the land, she can inherit the land. Like, you know, you don't need a large nun for that. So what's the large nun doing there? Okay, so it's, uh, I don't know if I'm going to do justice to it, but I'm trying to make it short because we're at the end here. You see, before the daughters of Slavkad act, we have the entire chapter of Pinchas. Okay? Pinchas, we said, in the beginning of the talk, Reb Shlomo says, Pinchas connected or reconnected the above to the below. Heavens and earth, he reconnected. You see, basically this goes back to the Garden of Eden. See, Reb Shlomo says like this, there's a Jerusalem above and there's a Jerusalem below. There's a Torah above, there's a Torah below. There's a you above and there's a you below. Who, what is exile? Who are the broken people in this world? The broken people in this world, the people who are in exile, are the people whose below is not connected to their above. Right? Your below has to be connected to your above. Okay? Pinchas restored this connection. 
When did the above and the below historically become disconnected? When Chava ate from the tree of knowledge, the tree of knowledge became bifurcated. It became separated from the tree of life. And we know that the consequence of Chava eating from that was that death was brought into the world. So Reb Shlomo says something awesome, something absolutely awesome. When Pinchas did his act, and he was blessed with the covenant of peace, and Pinchas basically is blessed to live forever, to become Eliyahu, to live forever, what he did was he reconnected the below with the above. In other words, this concept of death disappears now, because he fixed and reattached the below to the above. So the daughters of Slavchad, who up until now thought because we're daughters and that we don't have property rights because that halacha has not been revealed into the world yet, when they saw that Pinchas solved the problem of death on its root level, the daughters of Slavchad said, he's fixed the chet of Chava. So the first woman, the problem has been solved. Because Pinchas is Eliyahu, Pinchas lives forever, so this whole problem of death entering into the world, on some very root level, it's been solved. So we, the daughters of Slavchad, we should have rights, we should have a place in the land, because the land of Israel parallels the above. It's heaven on earth, literally. And so when they put their claim to Moshe Rabbeinu, right, and Moshe brought their claim before, Hash, before Hashem, that's why the large nun appears. Because the large nun, remember, nun is 50. 50 is the top of heaven. That's that inflection point. That's that place where heaven and earth are joining together. They're going to the root connection between heaven and earth. All the way to the top, but beyond the top. Beyond the top. Because Reb Shlomo says something amazing. He says, I'll read you. He says, I'm quoting, in Hasidus, the word lifnei, because it says they, they brought the claim, lifnei Hashem. Right? That, I'm sorry, Moshe brought it, lifnei Hashem, before Hashem. Okay? In Hasidus, the word lifnei always corresponds to the Pasuk, lifnei Hashem titaru. Before Hashem you will be purified. That's the key Pasuk, by the way, of Yom Kippur, of the Yom Kippur Davening. We say it over and over and over and over again throughout Yom Kippur Davening. Before Hashem you will be purified. Lifnei means beyond the name of Hashem, beyond creation, beyond the above. Yeah. Let it be clear to you, this is Reb Shlomo speaking, let it be clear to you, the question of Beno Slavchad, the daughters of Slavchad, was not a question about getting a little real estate in Israel. The question of Beno Slavchad was mamish, that the fixing of the tree of knowledge, the fixing of the eight sadas. Alright, and on that note, we'll, we'll end. Okay. Yeah.